Hello and welcome to Fans, the podcast hosted by me, Sachin Akrani, in which I speak to people I like, find interesting, or both about being football fans. And joining me for this episode to talk all things Tottenham Hotspur is broadcaster, filmmaker, campaigner, and all around lovely human being. It's Leon Man MBE. Leon, how are you? I'm good, Sachin. I'm good. I, I, I like the introduction. I'll, I'll definitely be, um, <coughs> be, be, be clipping that once you put this out and uh, and keeping up my personal records. Oh, you're welcome. Do, do, do with it as you wish. Yeah, it is. I've got to let you know it's a standard introduction. I do intro, I intro all my guests like that. <laughs> I'm not especially personalising for you, mate. Um, no, thanks, thanks very much for coming. I really appreciate it. And it's a big day. What a day for me to be talking to you because, drum roll, big news, I had a crown fitted this morning at the dentist. No, only joke. I did have a crown fitted at the dentist this morning, but that is obviously not, not the big news. So um, to let listeners know, we are recording this um, in the afternoon of uh, Tuesday, the 2nd of November 2021, obviously, uh, the day that Tottenham appointed Antonio Conte as their new manager. So very timely for me to be speaking to Leon about, about being a Spurs fan. Um, we will come on to that shortly. We've got loads to talk to you about Spurs, um, an interesting club, shall we say, to least. They've had, um, they've had some ups and downs over the years and, and, you've, and you've seen a lot of it. So we'll have a good chat about that. Um, before we do that, yeah, just want to talk about you a bit more. Um, said it in the introduction, Leon Mann, MBE, the first MBE I've ever had on this podcast. Um, I'm honoured. Um, for those who don't know, it's a member of the British Empire, of course. Um, and you awarded it in June, I think, was it this year? Uh, and was that specifically for your work with BCOMs? Yeah, I mean, it was um, for my work around diversity in sport and sports media. So um, BCOMs mm. was, was referenced um, the football blacklist um, wasn't. Um, that's not a problem. But um, I've done a lot of work with um, the, the football blacklist, celebrating the incredible black talent we have in this country, not just on the field of play, but also off it. So, um, so that's been um, a big contributor, I think, to, to me receiving that award. So, um, so yeah, it was it was it was a really lovely surprise, um, and um, something that made my family in particular very proud. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I saw you um, You post a lovely video on, on social media, on your Twitter feed, after you received the MBE, paying tribute to your grandparents and your parents. And yeah, I was, I was just going to ask your entire family, including your wife, Anna, who who I know pretty well, because I used to work with her at The Guardian, Anna Kessel. Um, yeah, they're just, they must be incredibly proud of you. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny because, um, you know, you never expect to get anything like that. MBE mm. things, it just, just wasn't part of any kind of plan or even aspiration um, yeah. at, at any point really so um so no it was it was really nice to to receive that and <clears throat> as I said you know in that video that the, the most important thing for me now is how I use this because you know it's nice having an MBE but it actually is really helpful in helping to open some more doors around the areas that I'm campaigning on and, and trying to open conversations around so mm. it's really important in that respect yeah, I can imagine. Well, we should say what BCOMS is. It's a black collective of media and sport. Um, I'm aware of it, which I'll come on to in a second. Uh, you know, I've got a good knowledge of it and, uh, and I've, we've spoken about it before. As I said, I'll come on to that in a second. But do you just want to broadly explain and outline what BCOMS is, how it came about, what it's trying to achieve? Yeah, yeah. so in, in 2008, um, I set up the black collective of media and sport, which is known widely now as BCOMS. Um, and the objective at that point was to, 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 to see how we diversify um, the sports media. Um, it's called BCOMS and, and the Black Collective Media and Sport because it was a black um, it was a collective of sports journalists from across the industry. Not many of us, only, only 10 of us at the time, 
um, who came together and said, what can we do to help address this issue of this lack of diversity mm. that we find ourselves within? Um, and we started knocking on doors, we started having conversations, started organising get-togethers, um, <clears throat> and fast forward to 2021, um, today is a, a huge day for BCOMs, um, because we have our first full-time member of staff. It's taken 12 years oh, wow. for us to get to this point, That's excellent. Um, and it's the right time for us to have a full-time member of yeah. staff. Um, Andrew DeSeal has joined us, he was previously at the Rio Ferdinand Foundation, and now comes across to us to lead our day-to-day -day work. So it's the first time we have somebody who wakes up on a Monday morning and thinks, how am I going to help to diversify the sports media uh, right through to the end of Friday every single week of the year. So um, it's a massive milestone for us. And I'm delighted to have played a part in getting us to this place. Yeah, no, that's excellent news. Well, I mean, I had the absolute pleasure of interviewing you about your work with BCOMs back in 2019. I think it was April 2019, uh, about a topic that's obviously important to me for obvious reasons about you know, diversity in the, in the UK sports media. Um, and when we spoke, you you provided some really um, stark figures around this issue. So um, as I said, this is an interview in 20. Uh, 19 and so these figures which i'm going to read out now relate to sort of 2018 um uh, the, the sort of figures around diversity in sort of the year 2018 so off the 338 journalists who covered major events in 2018 sporting events so that was the world cup the winter olympics the paralympics wimbledon the commonwealth games and the inaugural multi-sport european championships for the major national newspaper titles and broadcasting networks uh, your data becomes data showed that only 32, so that's 9.4% of those journalists came from an ethnic minority background. Of those 32, only five did not have an association with professional sport. No women from an ethnic minority background filled any of the 109 newspaper roles. And there was only one black writer of either gender who attended that year's World Cup, which was held in Russia, of course. Um, you said uh, during when, when I interviewed you about your work with BCOMs, you said those statistics didn't take into account roles in newsrooms and studios, but they're still pretty damning. And I'm sort of curious, uh, has any progress been made in the past two years? And if not, how much of that is down to COVID and how much of that is down to longstanding inaction of, on the part of media executives? No, I mean, first of all, I have to say, Sachin, that that article that, 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 you, that you wrote, that interview that you did was massively important to BCOMs because... You know, it's not often that the media reports on media problems, mm. if you know what I mean. Um, and I think The Guardian were, were, were great in covering this issue in the way that they did um, and in the way that, that you put the article together, I think, was just sensational. And it really well, can I just say, while you're, into, uh, while you're complimenting me, I just want to compliment you really quickly to show you just what a lovely man Leon Mann is. So a little story. So we did this interview. It was in the, it was in the Pret, uh, Pret Manger next to The Guardian's <laughs> office. You were kind enough to come down to me. And uh, we had a lovely chat and it was great. I really enjoyed speaking to you. And then something happened, which has only happened to me once in my entire journalism career, which is I lost the recording. I, I brought my uh, dictaphone down, recorded it, brought it back to the office, was going to listen back to it. And it just disappeared. I just couldn't, I knew, I know I recorded it. I definitely recorded it. I hit record, I checked it, but for some reason it disappeared. Absolute panic attack. And I rang you up like an hour later or, or probably sooner than that and, and explained what happened and anyone else might have sort of started ranting and saying what well, you know you're an idiot you're an unprofessional whatever but you were very kind and you agreed to essentially do the interview all over again so we sort of quickly did it over the phone again I remember sort of key bits but you, you filled in the gaps and uh, yeah got the interview out and yeah as you said he got a really good reception but just so people know what a lovely man Leon Mann is he, he yeah he allowed me to interview him twice because I lost it the first I lost the interview the first time around so it was really good of you mate 
no, no, I'm sure I was much better the second time. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all good. But in terms of the, 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 the progress that's been made since that article, I mean, that article, you know, I think sometimes as journalists, and I, I've kind of been guilty of this, um, and I'm not suggesting you are, Sachin, but sometimes we write an article, we do something, and we move on to the next thing. That's, that's our job. We mm. move on the next day to the next thing. That Sometimes we don't um, have a full appreciation of the impact and how it can help to create change. Um, but with this article, <clears throat> like genuinely, I had so many people reach out to me. Every single leader I'm speaking to, I think, um, either read this article or was made aware of it. Um, and it helped to really spark some conversations that did at that time help to really move things on and create a greater sense of urgency, um, a greater sense that we needed to, to do things to really kind of push on. Um, but in terms of the, the wider progress, I mean, you know, since that article, we've had, of course, the Black Lives Matter protests. Uh -huh. um, and off the back of those protests, um, we wrote as BCOMs, as a BCOMs board, a letter that was countersigned by <clears throat> David Beckham, Lewis Hamilton, Dean Rasher-Smith. You know, we had, you know, some of the biggest names um, in sport getting behind a letter where we called on the industry to reflect on the progress that he had made in diversifying. And we asked them to, the, the leaders that this was sent to, and it sent to 27 different leaders across the, the sports media, to, to have a think about their relationship with BCOMs as well. Um, because, look, we understand there are some parts of the sports media that are really struggling, they don't have much resource, um, and they're going through a tough time. There are other areas of the sports media um, where there is some resource, and there is an ability to kind of invest in this area um, of, of, of of working with us. Um, so anyway, off the back of this, we now are in a position where we have um, relationships with a number of different significant um, media outlets, um, and that's helping to fund our work, and that's helping us to increase the impact of what we're doing. Um, so, you know, I've mentioned today, we've got a first full-time person working for BCOMs. That's major, major progress for us. Mm. Um, and in that time, I think we've seen the emergence of, you know, Faduma Alo, for example, you know, she's somebody who came to BCOMs as a youth worker with a podcast um, and she fancied finding out a little bit more. Um, now she is working for the Telegraph Sport. She's pretty much leading the work on their social media channels, not just in women's sport, but across women's sport. She's also someone who's in big demand um, across the sports media for, for her broadcasting. She would, I'm pretty sure she's the only hijab wearing sports reporter in the industry. Mm. So that's somebody that, oh, all right, that's an individual, but that's somebody who's come through along that journey, along that mm. time, and is now part of the industry. Mayoa, um, another person on our masterclasses who's working for Versus, doing incredible work, um, making a big impact. Um, and there are many, many, many more examples I could go through. Um, so those are people that weren't being talked about when we did the article um, those years ago. In terms of the understanding and the level of urgency from the sports media bosses, I'd say, you know, pretty much, you know, 80% of the bosses that we've spoken to are showing a greater urgency. So things are significantly changing there. Um, and I think, you know, just things like Alex Scott being the presenter of Football Focus, for example, you know, all right, she's a former athlete. So people might say, well, her profile has helped there, but she's been on a long journey, Alex. You know, she... Well, she's trained as well, hasn't she? I think she's, she oh. went through sort of broadcast journalism training as well, Alex. Yeah. That's right. She went to yeah. um, Staffordshire University to do her course, which is funded by the PFA. 
Um, I, I produced one of her first pieces for PFA TV um, and she's flown since then. Um, she really has. And, you know, when you look at her as a pundit, she's sensational. As a presenter, she's getting better and better all the time. Um, Jermaine Genus is someone who's very, very visible, doing lots of things. Jess Crichton's profile has um, also increased significantly. Jeanette Quachi is everywhere. Um, everywhere I look, I see Jeanette Quachi and she's doing a sensational job. So this wasn't the case when we did our interview. I couldn't talk about these examples. And these are just the examples um, that are high profile, if you like, that listeners to this podcast would be able to kind of relate to. Yeah, now that is, I mean, it's excellent news. And um, yeah, I was going to mention Alex Scott as well as, as kind of the face of the um, the undisputed sort of greater diversity of the, of the UK sports media. That's undoubtedly happening um, at, at my place at The Guardian as well. We've in the last couple of years hired a couple of uh, ethnic diverse journalists. Tamani Carriol's become our tennis correspondent. Jonathan Lou's become our one of our chief sports writers as well. And I think there's definitely... You know, there's definitely a desire and an openness. I mean, openness is probably the wrong word. That should be automatic. But definitely a desire for, as you say, within bosses, within media executives, within editors to to diversify the media. I think there is a recognition, to put it bluntly, that the UK sports media is just far too white and it's been far too white for far too long. I know my sports editor, you know very well, Will Woodward. Mm. Um, he's really he's really keen and really determined to make an impact on that uh, on this issue. He ran a positive action scheme a couple of years ago, which he really, you know he oversaw, which was getting people from ethnic minority backgrounds into it was only sort of work experience placements, but just to get them in, mm. give them a few places. And, and often at newspapers, especially work experience is kind of it's kind of a pointless exercise. You sort of stick a sort of sixteen year old in the corner and and they don't do anything for two weeks. But this was a real active program to get them involved and get them working and get them understanding how how the industry works and get them sort of trained up as much as we could help them with that process and we had a few come through and, and do very well and, and i've seen a few since get jobs at a place like the athletic as well so so it's great yeah no it's excellent there's definitely progress being made you've 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 been at the forefront of that there's obviously a lot more to do and i think i think you might have even said this to me and it really stuck in my head is one of for me one of the key things that has to happen in this in this process in this journey is adding diversity to the hiring process i think far too often you know when people when journalists from ethnic minority backgrounds go for jobs and it's just not in journalism in all industries yeah. they're faced with an all-white panel and, and that has to change isn't it we have to see diversity in the hiring process because that's what level of empathy i think will open more doors for people from more different backgrounds big time big time big time and i think it's probably been you know something that hasn't been thought about um as much as it should have been done um by hr departments across the industry mm. because they're so focused on right how can we get diverse candidates they're running around trying to do this, which is a good thing, of course. Um, but then the diverse candidates come in um, and are sat opposite people who are viewing them from one lens. Or, exactly, yeah. Or, 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 one, or one lens in terms of, you know, their ethnicity. I mean, it might not be in terms of their political views or different views that, that they formed. I mean, not every white person is the same, of course. Mm. But, um, but in terms of <clears throat> adding diversity to that part of the process, I think it's essential. And I think, look, people say, oh, look, it's chicken and egg. We don't have anyone in the sports department to be able to sit on that, that board. It's like, OK, well, have we got anyone in the entire HR department? Have we got anybody who's a senior journalist who um, is outside of the sports department but could contribute within that, that space? Because, you know, we're talking about journalism and different principles. So, um, you know, I think, um, yeah, I, these are things now that, that people are just talking about and doing um so that's a sign of success in itself 
And, um, you know, like you say, we've, we've got a long way to go. Of, of course we do. Um, but I'm energised by the progress we've had in the last couple of years. Um, and that might be just because I'm very close to it. You mm. know, if there is anything good that happens, I'm normally one of the first people to know about it. So I kind of feel that. And I understand that there are people who aren't close to the progress and aren't close to the inside mm. knowledge, if you like, on on what's happening and, and, are, and are being and feeling completely marginalised um, and excluded. So, you know, it's important we communicate the progress that there's been clearly, but we're in the context of we've got a long way to go. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely the message. It's going in the right direction, but a lot more to do. But you've played a you've played a fantastic role in that uh, role in that, and fully deserving of all of all the accolades, including the all the MBEs and whatever else comes your way. So well well done on that. I really do sort of admire you for that. Um, right, let's talk Spurs. So as I said, loads to talk about a club that's had a very interesting history, and especially during your time supporting them. We have got to start with today's news. So um, by the time this podcast comes out, it'll come out in a couple of weeks. Um, Antonio Conte will have been Spurs manager for a few games. So <laughs> who knows how he'll have done. I'm sure he'll probably get off to a, a very good start because he's an excellent manager. And I do think actually Spurs have got a, a decent squad that's underperformed somewhat over the last few years. Um, but yeah, he has. he's a new Spurs manager. Replaced poor old Nuno uh, today. Nuno, who just never looked like a good fit, I think, for Tottenham and, and looked pretty bereft during um, the defeat to Manchester United, which happened a few days before recording. I know you were there at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium which for what was a pretty horrendous defeat for Spurs. Played really poorly and lost 3-0. Um, yeah, obvious question. Thoughts on Conte becoming the new Spurs manager? Yeah, you know what? I, I, it's, it's, it's a really interesting one for me because am I excited by this? I'm being made to... to to feel like I should be more excited than I am. Um, so um, the reason why I'm not as excited as probably 99% of the Spurs fans out there, certainly on social media, my mm. um, social media feed is ablaze with everybody <laughs> celebrating and out in the streets partying. But I kind of feel like I've been here before with this, you know, big name manager who's going to transform anything. Can they're a winner? It's like that guy was called Jose Mourinho. Yeah. Um, and Sorry. oh yeah, but he doesn't play great football. It doesn't matter. He's a winner. Well, there's kind of a similar narrative with uh, Conte in many ways in terms of I, I, I'm not finding many people telling me about the expansive, you know, football. The, the whole thing that the club went on the record to talk about in terms of the NDA of the club must be attractive, free flowing football. Um, I must admit, I'm, I'm struggling to remember Conte's teams playing that kind of football. So I'm almost reaching out to all my Chelsea friends and saying, tell me that I'm wrong. Tell me that what I remember was wrong. Because we know with Nuno, there was a similar question mark and there's stories of, you know, the director of football getting videos out of Nuno playing great football when he was in Spain. And also when he came to, to, to Wolves at first, where they played some brilliant football. I remember watching that. So that's my only thing. Are we making the same mistake over again in terms of not really addressing the thing that Spurs fans, when things go wrong, seem to think is the most important, which is the football? Now, of course, if we're going to win games, that goes out the window because three games into this season, everyone was rubbing their hands together going, oh, wow, this could be a great year for us. Um, I think anyone who watched all three of those games wasn't rubbing their hands together so much because Wolves, we never should have won that game. Um, and I think we were quite fortunate in our other game that wasn't Man City. I can't remember. It was it right Watford, now. wasn't it? I think Watford at home. Yeah. Watford. Three, you start with three 1 0 wins, didn't you? Man City, Watford, and Wolves. Yeah. yeah. Watford were decent that day. Mm. I, I looked at their, their team and I, 
it's, it's always the same with Watford. I'm like, oh my god, I don't know half of these players. You always, <laughs> yeah. When you're watching Watford for the first time, you need to have yeah. your program with you. To go, <laughs> yeah. Right, number twenty three. Who's that? Yeah. Okay, that's that guy. You know, yeah. it, it, it's incredible. I mean, I really enjoy watching them for that reason. You just discover all these different players. I find, yeah. um, but <clears throat> but no, look, am I? I'm, I'm I'm hopeful about Conte, but you know, I won't be doing cartwheels just yet. Um, I'm kind of very cautious about this one because there are players that I love in that Tottenham team that haven't performed that I just really fear for. Um, I really fear for Tange Undumbele. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> he has a problem, um, supposedly, with you know working hard in training. Now, you never know if that's true or not because there's always some fun and games in the press with different agents whispering different things, <clears throat> clubs briefing different ways, etc., but he is a footballer who one of the Spurs um, coaching team described to me as one of the best and most skillful players they've ever seen. Um, and watching him <clears throat> when it's going well, he can do things that other players can't do. Yeah. And that's why we turn up as fans. Yeah. <laughs> we don't want to turn up and just see the things that maybe we could do if we were a lot fitter and a lot healthier and had some good instructions. Um, you know, we'll talk about the Gazers and we'll talk about the Ginolas and we'll talk about all these players later on. But he is a player who can do some incredible mm. things. And it will be really fascinating to see how it works with Antonio Conte. Really, really will. Because if he can get him right, <clears throat> it, it, it could be a super successful season. Because I do believe he is the key to Tottenham being a good team and an excellent team. So yeah, in summary, I, I'm 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 cautiously optimistic about Conte, but all of the logic suggests to me that it's not going to work. Oh really? <clears throat> well, well, yeah. I I sort of have a similar. I mean, my, I think it's a fantastic appointment for Spurs, and I think the key difference between him and Mourinho is Mourinho really was a busted flush by the time he came to Spurs. His best mm-hmm. days were well and well and truly behind him, whereas Conte literally won Serie A last year. I mean, he is still in the sort of prime of his managerial life. I just think the biggest issue, and I was having a conversation with Spurs friend of mine on Twitter today, a lad called Harry Sherlock, who who typically gets overexcited about. Uh, the smallest good thing and gets, uh, you know, hits the floor when it gets a little bit bad. I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a lad of extremes. I do love him. But yeah, he's, he was going sort of mad this morning. I had to calm him down a bit because my fundamental point with, with Conte is it just seems a bad fit for Spurs in the sense that he's a manager who will demand he's backed financially and, to, and, and back to a high level financially. And your chairman, Daniel Levy, his brand is a man who doesn't back managers. So, I think you'll have one or two pretty good years with Conte. He'll probably win you a cup, might win you, which is obviously great for Spurs because won one for so long. You might get in the top. You'll get, I think, very good chance of getting you in the top six and, and very good chance of getting in the top four, perhaps. But it'll end, I think it'll end in two years and it'll end in tears and he'll walk out because he got overly frustrated with with Levy. And I and I do I think personally Spurs should look at Graham Potter. I think he's an outstanding manager. He, he, he's not the sexiest of names. He doesn't sell himself. He hasn't got that sort of wow factor, but I think he's an outstanding coach. He's done brilliantly at Brighton. And the issue is that once Conte does walk out in two years, Potter could be gone as well. He could be snapped away somebody else and you'll, miss, you'll have missed out on him. So that's sort of my take. I think he'll do well for you, Conte, but it'll be in a very short, sharp burst. Look, I mean, look, if he wins, if he wins a cup for us and goes in two years, that is a huge success. Yeah, <laughs> right. I guess it is, yeah, it is in, in context of what's come before. Yeah, yeah. So, of the context of where 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 we've been for a very long time, um, 
that would be a huge success. I mean, I, I don't know, it, it's, it's such a difficult one for me. And I know it's not for others, but I've seen people tweeting and posting about it's not the Tottenham way. We've got to be attractive. We've got to do this. Mm. We've got to do that. And then I'm thinking you're the same people that are saying, oh, Conte is amazing for us. And I get it that he's a winner. Um, <clears throat> maybe I don't know enough. And that's what the problem is here for me. Um, and oh, oh, with every Tottenham manager, I'll back them to the hill, you know, as a fan. But <clears throat> I think there are just so many question marks and you've, you know, very articulately raised a number of them there that it's a wait and see. <clears throat> yeah. It's a wait and see for me. But, you know, I'm, I'm a new era, another new era for Tottenham. Um, let, let's see what happens. Um, it, it feels like a long, long time ago, Pochettino kind of just spoiled us massively um for a long time but um but let's see let's see exciting times i guess yeah yeah just to say on and uh, below as well I think, yeah I, I agree i think he's an outstanding player i mean i remember the game he played against newcastle a few weeks ago i thought he was he was brilliant in that and i've seen bits of him and i know spurs fans i sort of listen to uh, listen to a tottenham podcast and they rave about him and i think he's one of those players that spurs fans know is really special but perhaps the outside world uh, during his time in England specifically, haven't fully grasped. But no, I agree. I think he's an excellent player. If Conte can get the best out of him, then, then you've got a real star in your hands. But uh, we mentioned him there, Daniel Levy. Just I do want to have a quick chat about him. Um, I think I think Conte, if I'm not mistaken, is his 15th managerial appointment since he became chairman of the club in uh, in 2001. Um, but it's fair to say he's not a, um, he's not an especially popular figure among Spurs fans uh, right now. Well, probably it's right now because he's got Conte, but uh, he hasn't been for a little while. I think that's fundamentally because I think there's a sense among Spurs fans that the club has really stagnated and probably you know, gone backwards, essentially, since you reached a Champions League final in 2019. I think they blame Levy for that, uh, for not backing P- Pochettino, you mentioned, in the transfer market after he repeatedly called for funds to refresh the squad and keep it competitive. There's been other issues as well, for instance, uh, Levy's desire to enter Spurs into the uh, European Super League earlier this year. Um, in his defence, I would say he's you know he clearly cares for the club. I think he's a fan himself as well. So his intentions, you'd have to say, are good. Um, he has modernised the club as well internally and with the stadium, which is which is absolutely fantastic. I've had the privilege of visiting it a few times, um, and he did of course hire Pochettino as well, who's been your best manager after the last sort of, 30, 40 years. I think there's no dispute about that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, where do you stand with him? Where do you stand with Daniel Levy? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, you look at that stadium, it is absolutely sensational. And it's in Tottenham, which is mm. not talked about very much. You know, it's a big, big, big thing when I was working as a sports news journalist. Um, all of this chat about moving the stadium out towards Enfield Way on the side of a motorway or wherever it was, some Brownfield site that they were looking to build on. Um, but it stayed within Tottenham and... That for me is really important because I'm from the local area. Um, I love football grounds that sit within communities. Mm. I hate football grounds that sit within car parks, ultimately on the edges of cities. Just feels so soulless. There's a different experience, you know, going to an Anfield, going to a Goodison Park, going to, you know, um, even to some extent, yeah, Manchester City, you know, going to those grounds and weaving round mm. the, 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 the houses. There's something magical about that. Um, and so I'm really, really pleased that um, we've stayed within Tottenham. <clears throat> so that's a, a huge, huge thing. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think bringing in a Jose was, a, all right, OK, we just need to try and, and, and do something that we normally wouldn't do. Let's go for a big name manager <clears throat> and let's go for it. That didn't work out. Um, I think 
as everyone said. And it'll be interesting to see what Daniel Levy has to say in the future when presumably he'll write a book maybe one day explaining why he didn't or what the actual situation was in terms of investment. Because, you know, I've heard other stories that Pochettino would ask for one player, you know, mm. and say, I need this player, but he wouldn't give three or four players. So as a result of that, look, you know, if you're competing for one player as Tottenham against Juventus and against Manchester United and Manchester City, if you don't get them, who else are you going for? Yeah, yeah. The stories like that. So I don't know how much truth there is in that. Obviously, there's a lot of briefing and counter-briefing that goes on in football and that plays out in the media. So it's always difficult to know what the truth is. But, you know, in, in, in terms of, you know, the Tottenham I've seen, you know, when I first started supporting Tottenham under Terry Venables, we were second, third, fourth. And then we slowly, we slipped down to like the 14s and 15s and 13s and really kind of experienced some some real bad old years. And actually Levy was responsible for helping us to kind of move out of that yeah. mid-tier. And, <clears throat> you know, how sport were we? You know, Champions League regulars when you had, you know, teams like Liverpool not doing so well at the time. Um, you know, other teams, you know, not kind of performing in the same way. I mean, I never thought I'd see in my lifetime Manchester United struggling, given the Manchester United that I grew up with. You know, they were always under Sir Alex, smashing it. You know, mm. you never think of them kind of falling down the league. So, you know, teams have ups and downs. There's a big frustration within Tottenham. It would be interesting to see if we'd have won a couple of FA Cups, for example, like Arsenal have done, <clears throat> would that be a mark of success? Um, I also think the fact that Arsenal were doing so well at a period of time during Tottenham's history and we weren't winning any, everything um, has, you know, influenced our supporter base to kind of, you know, be, be possibly hungrier for success um, as a result of seeing them down the road and Chelsea. And now we're seeing West Ham playing well. It kind of all just fits this mix mm. of um, negativity and we're rubbish and we've never done anything when actually we have done some good stuff. Um, so it, it's really difficult to have a straight assessment of Daniel Levy. I can see the good and the bad, um, and the truth often lies in the middle. Yeah, no, I, I agree with Levy. I mean, I'm obviously I'm, not, I'm completely outsider to it, but I, I get I get the frustration with it. But I also, you know, I, I you know I grew up watching football in the '90s, and we'll come on to this. But you weren't very good in the '90s, and in the noughties onwards, you've become progressively a really good team. And in the sort of 2010s, you're an excellent team. And Levy. It's obviously key to that. It's just whatever, you know, even if you don't like him, you've got to admit that. So, yeah, I think I think it's it absolutely nailed it. There's quite a complex, difficult one to assess, I think, his his chairmanship of the club. But he's uh, he's undoubtedly done a lot of good things as, as well as probably a few bad. Um, yeah. But as I said, we'll come on. You touch on a lot of things and we'll, we'll come on to them uh, as we speak. Yeah, as I said, loads of things to touch on. The first thing I, sh- I think we should do or uh, first thing moving on from the Conte and Levy chat is just go back to the very start. I think you've pretty much answered this. I was going to ask why Leon Mann is a Spurs fan. And I think it's because you're a local lad. You're from Tottenham. Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, I am um, from an area, well, a place called Green Lanes, Haringey Green Lanes in North London. Um, so actually it sits geographically, you know, slap bang between Highbury um, and the old Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, White Hart Lane. Mm. Uh, so it's actually slightly more towards the Highbury um, Stadium because I could hear when Arsenal would score if I was in my garden. Um, and when they had their winning parades, they would kind of, you know, you, again, you could hear those parades and, you know, the the beeping horns, etc. on the nights of like, you know, when they won the league at Liverpool. There was a strong, strong Arsenal presence in the area. But 
Um, I used to train at um, Tottenham Hotspurs. There's like a little ball courts next to the old ground. Um, so I used to train in there with Ralph Coates, who was one of my um, coaches who used to play for Spurs, you know, in the 60s and 70s. Um, there was a there were two twins, Roger and Ian Morgan, who used to play for QPR, and they were kind of heavily involved in Tottenham in the community at the time. So I used to go to the um, to the stadium to train often, um, and then once you do that as a kid, I think mm. you just got your relationship there. And of course, my dad, my dad's a, um, from Worcester, but he's a big Tottenham fan because his dad used to go down to um Enfield to visit family and that was right next to the Tottenham ground so actually my dad was going to Tottenham in the in the 60s as a kid as well so it's a, a generational thing um but but yeah it's it, it it was one of those things where I think at one point um as a kid I supported Tottenham and Arsenal because they were both local and I supported Liverpool because of John Barnes um so then I had to my dad said look you've got to make a decision <laughs> yeah. I'll support those three for the rest of your life yeah, that's, not, <laughs> that's sustainable certainly the first two yeah, yeah support Tottenham and Arsenal that's not gonna, that's not gonna work yeah. <laughs> exactly and then um and then my dad said you've got to make a decision and I said oh it's Tottenham and he was obviously very pleased about that and the John Barnes posters came down as did the <laughs> Arsenal posters and yeah. um I can it's safe to say they've never been back up so, um, so yeah, that's that's my why do I support Tottenham story? Yeah, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Um, I mean, there's a lot of you know you'll be aware of it more you know more than me, I guess. But a lot of mockery around Spurs, the whole Spursy thing, and lads, it's Tottenham and they never win anything. But um, there's no doubt the club has undeniably has a rich and romantic history. I mean, you're the first English club in the 20th century to win a league and FA Cup double in, in 60-61. First English club to win a UEFA competition, the Cup Winners' Cup in, in 1963. And during various periods, um, I'd say specifically under Bill Nicholson, who was, who was your legendary manager between 1938 and 1955. Um, and Sorry, not 1938 to 1955. I've got that wrong, haven't I? Because he was manager when you won the double in 61. I've got that wrong. I'll have to check that again. And, and obviously throughout the 80s, um, when you had the likes of Glenn Hoddle in your team as well, you played some excellent you know, football, attractive, um, entertaining football. Um, so growing up as a fan then, did you have a sense that you followed a really sort of special, successful club in a way that perhaps Spurs fans who are, let's say, 30 years and younger don't feel about the club now? Yeah, I mean, look, when I first started supporting Spurs, um, you know, it was like Hoddle had just left, but Waddle was still there. And mm. Waddle was an absolute wizard. Yeah, um, I mean, player, I would yeah. encourage any person who never saw Chris Waddle play, you know, to get on YouTube and to have a look at the way he played. I mean, it was just so, so different to anybody else. Yeah, it was kind just, of... yeah just saying Chris Waddle, we had um, we had John McClough, who's a, who's, a, who's a singer, lead singer of one of my favourite bands, Reverend and the Makers, on this podcast a few episodes ago. He's a Sheffield Wednesday fan. Right. And Waddle obviously played for Sheffield Wednesday, but at right quite near the tail end of his career. He was in his, well into his 30s when he moved there. And he said, John said, he's the best player he's ever seen play for Sheffield Wednesday. And this is when he was in his 30s. So yeah. he might waddle at his peak was, uh, you know, well, his peak lasted so long. He was just a great player, wasn't he? Oh, just such a great player. And look, I didn't watch uh, Waddle live very much because that was before my, my first game. Um, but then we went from Waddle into some guy called Paul Gascoigne, oh. <laughs> you know, so... Watching those two back to back, you know, was just just very special. It didn't matter about what the rest of the team was doing, because as a kid, you know, you're going, wow, look what that person, they can do something that I would never dream of being. And, and that's where the excitement comes from for me. And I think that's what hooked me in as a Tottenham fan, because 
it, the, the, those kind of players just kept coming. They kept coming through the door at Tottenham Hotspur. So no matter how bad we were, you know, we always had somebody who could do something quite special. More present day, kind of the, the likes of Gareth Bale or some scrawny kid turns up at left back who can hit a decent free kick. And then all of a sudden gets on the weights and turns into, you know, arguably one of the best players Tottenham have ever had. And, and, and then Harry Kane, this kind of slightly chubby kid, kind of rocks up. And I'm thinking, God, it, who, who is this guy? And, you know, doesn't set the world alight. But then again, just goes away and he kind of like physically transforms into this superhero. And he's hitting the top corner wearing a mask against Arsenal. You know, all these kind of like magical things happen on this Tottenham journey that kind of just hook you in. And um, have certainly given me a load of joy and I feel like I've earned it because of the love. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, yeah. all those stats that you went through before, I've stopped doing them because I'm so embarrassed when I'm debating which is the better club, Tottenham or Arsenal or Chelsea or Tottenham or whatever it is, because I just can't win those debates anymore. I've had the same stats and they haven't changed in the yeah. last kind of like 30 years. So it's, it's yeah, it, it certainly feels like a magical club to support. Yeah, well, you, you rattled off a few names, and then they'll all be mentioned as as we go on uh, in this in this podcast. I mean, two of those players, so Chris Waddle and Paul Gascoigne, and we will definitely talk about Paul Gascoigne in a bit. One of my all time favourite footballers. They were both involved in your first ever Spurs game, so you were kind enough to provide me with the details of of, of your first ever Spurs game that you attended. So it was on Saturday, twenty second of April, nineteen eighty nine. Uh, it was a first division game at White Hart Lane, Tottenham two, Everton one. Paul Walsh got both of Spurs' goals. Neil McDonald got one for. Everton. So yeah, in the Spurs team that that day with the likes of Paul Gascoigne, Chris Waddle, Gary Mabbott and uh, and Chris Hewton played in that game as well. And there's a lovely, very poignant story uh, regarding why that was your first ever Spurs game. Do you want to do you want to tell it? Yeah, no. Um, I mean, that that game was a really, really special game. And I can remember many parts of it really, really clearly. Um, but before that game, um, I'd been at a friend's house um, and it was, um, you know, we, were, we had the television on and it was the, the Hillsborough disaster, sadly. So, so yeah, so, so, so all of this was unfolding on the television. Mm. Um, and, um, you, know, I, you know, I mentioned to my dad when I got back, because obviously he had it on in the house when I got back in. And, you know, he, he, was, he, was, he was worried that what I'd seen uh, might feel like what it was like at football because mm. I'd never been to a football game. You know, I was obsessed with football, knocking the ball around in the garden. And but for him, he 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 told me later on. I didn't know at the time necessarily, but he he made the decision to take me to a game. Um, you know, pretty swiftly after that to to ensure that I knew what football really was like and I knew that what had happened was not normal in any kind of way um, and that I shouldn't be scared of going to a football game. Um, so he took me to that game and I just remember so many things about it because, you know, the, the old stands then, these wooden seats that they had um, at Spurs, just being like like so many people, being mm. around so many people, that's just not normal. For, for a person in society, you know, you're not surrounded by 20,000 people um, in the same way. And I think the, the attendance was probably more towards 30,000, I think, that day. So being around so many people for a small kid, it's just like, wow, where am I and what's going on? 
Um, and then they had, you know, the light bulbs were there. There were no kind of, you know, like LED lights or whatever they might be now. Um, you know, the light bulb basically swinging from side to side in the yeah. staff, which was just really, really kind of like, I don't know, atmospheric. Everything was dark brown and, you know, yet there was this this pitch that was just this beautiful kind of green kind of, you know, the pitches I'd be playing on, the green that I would see would be very different to obviously a professional football pitch. And I was, I was kind of looking at those lines, you know, the lines that the linesmen do when they kind of mm. like mow one way and mow the other way. And I, I was like, how do they do that, Dad? How do they make this look, um, you know, so incredible? And, yeah. um, you know, there's so many things uh, that kind of captured my attention and I was just kind of blown away by. You know, that game, you know, was, was, was a real kind of special experience. And the thing that kind of hit me the most was just the noise, you know, the noise of, you know, 25,000 people screaming, jumping, celebrating a goal. I was actually really scared of thinking of it at first. So I kind of thought, oh, God, we scored one. I don't want us to score another because that scared the hell out of me. Um, so for a little period, I was kind of like almost hoping Tottenham didn't score um, going along <laughs> yeah. with kids until you get used to it, which when yeah. I got used to it, it was fine. But, you know, to watch a game and to see, you know, a player like Paul Walsh with his kind of long, you know, gelled back hair flowing, you know, as he kind of scurried around. He had this way of playing that was just all energy and skill. And, you know, it, it, was, it was just such a brilliant, brilliant moment in my life. Yeah, now you've perfectly summed up that. That first time you walk into a football ground, there's just no experience like it. Just it's, it's all those elements for me. Yeah, when you see a football pitch, it looks like nothing else you've seen before you, i don't think you're quite ready for how green a football pitch is until you see one in the in the in the flesh and i totally agree with you just seeing just being part of a mass of people for the first time and actually is, is incredible and actually really hit me when i went back to anfield for the first time after lockdown first game back with fans which is we played burnley at anfield in our second game of this current season and it was my first time being back obviously at at the ground since pre-covid and I've stood in, you know, by that time, by that stage, I'd stood in, you know, crowds, you know, hundreds of times. But it, it just to have it to have that experience again after 18 months of not having it was just it was actually quite overwhelming and quite emotional and just felt wonderful. It was almost like doing it again for the first time. You know, I went to my first game in 1992 and to have that experience again, almost that first time it felt of standing in a crowd was just absolutely magical. But I mean, that game. So that game happened exactly a week after Hillsborough so seven days uh, after Hillsborough happened and that's just absolutely I think just think that's absolutely lovely that your dad took you to that game to show you that football isn't something to be terrified of I mean were you quite worried about going to football and do you think perhaps if your dad hadn't taken you to that game because of what happened at Hillsborough what had happened seven days before that Spurs Everton game you you may not have got involved in football because I can imagine Hillsborough I mean I was very young when it happened I was I was eight you're, I'm guessing you're a little bit older than me then. So I don't remember it that well, but I'm guessing for you, who probably at the time was affected by it, would you, can, could you imagine Hillsborough actually would have put you off football if your dad hadn't acted so quickly and took you to that first game, which then led to you falling in love with the sport? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was just confusing, you know, watching what was going on on television because mm. no, no one had a clue what was going on. You know, the commentators weren't quite sure. It was, it was, it, it, there was just, I mean, certainly as a kid, you know, it was just, well, why aren't they playing football why why is it not continuing mm. it's, you know what what's what's going on here and it, yeah so, so it was more kind of confusing to me at that point rather than kind of hit me in terms of what had happened and I think because I was so young I wasn't watching the news reports that would have detailed it 
I wasn't, you know, I was too young to be reading um, the, the newspapers, etc. But I think probably it had impacted my dad more so oh, in terms right. of, yeah. you know, being immersed in the detail and, you know, going to football, being part of his life. You know, he's been going to football all his life from when he's been a kid right through to now. And I think, you know, he's a teacher. So um, I think he was just very proactive in kind of like, you know, nipping anything in the bud. And mm. also, you know, I think it had been something that he'd been planning to do for a while, but this was the perfect reason to accelerate that action in terms of taking me to, the, uh, to a game. Now on 4, we join ITN for a news report from Nicholas Owen. Good evening. 93 football fans are dead after Britain's worst sporting disaster. They were crushed when hundreds of supporters flooded into Sheffield's Hillsborough Stadium for the FA Cup semi-final between Liverpool and Nottingham Forest. There are two emergency phone numbers, 0742 570800 and 051 708 7277. Tonight, the Chief Constable of South Yorkshire said a senior police officer ordered a double gate at the back of the stand to be opened because of the crush outside. Gabby Rado reports. The game had only just started when the first casualties began to arrive onto the pitch and for a while play carried on because no one realised the horror of what was happening in the terraces. Behind the Liverpool goal, an irresistible forward movement of people met an immovable object, the perimeter fence, and human beings started to be crushed to death. It was an appalling predicament for the mainly young fans who could see safety within inches but were prevent prevented from reaching it by thin wire mesh. The lucky ones climbed over or were able to make their way to the next enclosure where there was less pressure from behind. The Hillsborough turf became a giant makeshift first aid enclosure. The death toll rose inexorably through the afternoon. It's, it's funny because the, the school that I went to and the community that I grew up in, importantly, not many of my friends were going to the football games at all. Like, literally, you know, I would be the one, one person in the entire school going to games in a way that I was almost like a bit of a celebrity. You know, oh, God, Leon goes to the game. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. well, I actually went and you saw like those players. Like, Oh, yeah. And, yeah. you know, it's always a special thing. And I think that made it even more special. And it's something that influenced me later on in my life, because I thought, well, why weren't those other young people, those other kids going to games the same way I was? And I think there were a number of different reasons. One would be financial, one would be family set up, one would be kind of the fear of racism, going to a football ground. So all of those things in the mix meant that, you know, my, my dad, who's white, was taking me to a game you know he's a teacher so we, we had the financial funds to be able to go um he's known football because he'd been going all the time so actually I had someone who could look after me and know the space mm. whereas I think many many of my friends who loved football much more than me maybe well I don't know about much more than me actually but as much as me weren't going and I really hope that that's that's not the case now that if I go back to the school's called South Haringey South Haringey school for us to go back there now I would hope that there would be many of the young kids going to football maybe not every week with a season ticket because it's very expensive but you know going to games enough to experience what it's like and 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 being part of you know that football experience yeah that's no, just interesting you, you just mentioned it there about about racism being an issue um I mean has that has that been 
something you've had to deal with as, as a match goer. Um, I guess maybe at Spurs, not so much given what a sort of ethnically diverse area that is. I'm guessing maybe the crowd at White Hart Lane is quite quite diverse. And I'm wondering if your dad, in that, with that first game and maybe any subsequent games, I don't know if you've ever spoken to him about this, was he ever worried about taking to football? Because this is obviously the late 80s we're talking about. It was a different time to what it is now as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's funny because... You know, I always have these memories of, of walking through Bruce Castle Park, which is right next to the old Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, well, new Tottenham Hotspur Stadium as well, so White Hart Lane. And it would be really strange because I'd be in my, you know, a little Tottenham kit. Um, well, Tottenham kit. I wouldn't wear the full kit to a game. I'd, I'd wear the shirt to a game. Hmm. Walking through that park and you'd see, you know, lots of young black kids playing football all in Arsenal Chelsea, not, not Chelsea, sorry, all in Arsenal, Liverpool or Manchester United shirts. Not many Tottenham shirts at all. And on the back of those Arsenal shirts, Ian Wright's name, later on Thierry Henry's name, Liverpool shirts, John Barnes' name. So actually, in terms of the local community and them supporting the local club in terms of Tottenham, you know, we'd had Garth Crooks before and we'd had other black players, but at the time I was going, it was only like um, Mitchell Thomas, and you know I wasn't sure is Vinnie Samways black or not. I can't, I can't, can't really sure. tell. He, I was, yeah, I don't. I yeah, is he Middle Eastern? Possibly. Yeah, we're like part I, of the world. I, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I was never ever sure. Yeah, um, and a lot of my friends at school would be like, "Why do you support Tottenham? They ain't got no black players." Um, look at Arsenal. We've got Rowcastle, Davis. We've got, you know, Ian Michael Ryan, Thomas, yeah. Michael, we did yeah. all these players, and they couldn't understand why I was supporting the white team. And actually, I was supporting that team just because, you know, um, I'd been training down there, and I, you know, loved the team, and my dad was a fan, so it was a natural thing for me to go and watch Tottenham. Over the years, that changed in terms of the black players that we had, but you know, in terms of the racism. You know, there, 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 there were racist things that I heard as a kid. And I would just, I'd just pray that my dad wouldn't hear it because my thing would be, oh God, I just told my dad to turn around and start having a row with someone because, you know, as a kid, you're like worried that, oh God, that's embarrassing. And also, you know, pretty nasty people out there. Yeah. So you don't want to see your dad get just punched in the face or you don't want to be involved in anything like that and that's interesting you're more worried when you hear when you're hearing racist speech you're more worried for your dad than yourself because it i mean it would have been it would affect you more in it i would have thought but you you were thinking almost you were thinking immediately about how it affected your dad that's that's quite yeah. interesting i think but i was just thinking about my my immediate situation yeah so if i heard racist abuse as a kid then i would not like it but what i'd be more worried about is if it was direct if something started being directed to me so if something's directed to others on the pitch, obviously I don't like it. Obviously I'm offended. Obviously I want them to stop. I'm a kid, you know. So that's a big snarling person normally. And that yeah. normally was the kind of, you know, that's, that's what the person normally was when I would kind of sneak a little look around the corner to see who it was and pray that they didn't see me looking because that could be, right, what are you looking at? And, you mm. know, them getting stuck into me. That was my big, big fear. That, that I would be the, the the target in this small confined space that didn't feel like I mean very few people were would ever challenge the the abuse that was kind of spouted um, and that was within the Tottenham fan base you know not very much you know it wouldn't be like I'd be there with mass monkey chanting mm. um, but there certainly would have been there certainly were kind of racist things that were said to the extent that I you know when we play like a Crystal Palace 
or when we play a Wimbledon, I, I would have a real anxiety about those games because they had numbers, particularly Wimbledon, had numbers of black players and mm. Wimbledon had a way of playing that was very aggressive, which got the crowd kind of going in terms of, you know, um, their kind of you know, the, the verbals coming from the crowd. And I'd just be like, oh no, because it, it just felt like it was it was it was this big explosion of hatred towards black people yeah. um, within that within that space, um, and then over time, you know, that began to began to change um, slowly. I think I grew a, a very thick skin to hearing abuse in and around football, and you know, just felt, you know, well, I'm going to tell my dad about it at a football game. He's likely to have a chat with someone that's likely to escalate into something. I just don't want any of this. Mm. <laughs> it's I, I almost like as a kid, I just want a quiet life. I want to turn up and watch my heroes play football. And I don't want to be involved in all of this other kind of stuff yeah. that's nothing to do with me. So I found it I found it difficult in that respect, but it never stopped me going. There was never a moment where I was like, I don't want to go to the football today. Mm. Um, there was never that. It wasn't. It didn't happen enough for that to to take place but there was certainly an anxiety that existed within me when i knew we'd be playing against a team with a number of black players or a team with a prominent black player like a striker who was in red hot form who was mm-hmm. likely to be kind of all over us but now i don't feel that you know <laughs> now now i don't i don't feel that at all and you know i was shocked at the first game I was back at after the pandemic, which was uh, the Man City game where Tottenham won this season, and the players took took the knee, and there was a couple of like geezers to the left of me who were just loudly booing. Um, I couldn't see them because they were out the corner, hear it, and I, and the people around me was like bloody idiots, what are they bloody booing for? Blah 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 blah. And I was like, yes, this is the response I want. I don't want to feel like I'm the guy who has to say something. Yeah, yeah. Time. I just want to turn up and have a Saturday afternoon watching football and not be the campaigner. In, in terms of the progress made in the stands, big progress. And, and I love it when I see um, an Asian family, a black family at games, just getting on with going to a game. Not mm-hmm. because it's anti-racism day, not because it's any campaign, just because they come to Spurs or they go to whatever club they support every week and it's just part of what they do. I love that because that was not the norm when I was going with my dad mm. as a young boy. No, that's all really interesting. I mean, the thing with taking knees, I, 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 I have zero issues with it. And I've, and I've been in many games where, where players have obviously taken a knee and I've applauded it. And, and thankfully, the vast majority of people around me have done it as well. I take the slight Wolf Zaha take on the knee slightly, which is that I'm not sure the impact is having now and I'm wondering whether it's become a bit of a token gesture but equally I think the most overriding important aspect of it is it's made race a prominent issue at football it's made people talk and debate and think about it and that collective very warm kind of feeling you get when the vast majority of people around you applaud football is taking a knee is definitely not only a sign of progress but as I said something that really is warm and encouraging given how football used to be and I mean I'm quite I well, I feel very lucky that I went to my first football game in 1992 and I've suffered, I've suffered racism a couple of times on, on two very sort of isolated incidents, relatively recent. Well, I say recent, once was in 2005, once was in 2018 uh, with sort of opposition fans at Anfield. I won't mention them. I won't mention who the club they, they belong to because otherwise I'll just get a load of stick on Twitter. But yeah, I've got a bit of race abuse, but overall I've, I've been very lucky. And, and I think I, you mentioned John Barnes there. I actually think 
when I went to my first Liverpool game in 1992, I wasn't worried about racism, partly because I was so young. Maybe it wasn't something that was prominent in my mind. But I think secondly, because I supported a team that John Barnes played for and he was their best player, I kind of thought, how can I be racially abused at Liverpool when our best player is black? I don't know if that was, I didn't think that sort of, um, that wasn't sort of a conscious thought, but I wonder if subconsciously I had that thought. I felt protected against racism because Liverpool's best player at the time was John Barnes. So I don't know if, but I've never sort of worried about it. And thankfully, as I said, apart from two incidents, I've not had to suffer it. So, yeah, I feel lucky. And uh, I certainly I'm very encouraged to see the progress being made. Let's go back. So when you were sporting Spurs in the in the late 80s, early 90s, when you started sporting Spurs in the late 80s, early 90s, very good team under Terry Venables. You actually finished uh, third at yeah. the end of the 89-90 season. Uh, behind Liverpool and Aston Villa and ahead of Arsenal, we finished fourth. The following season, 1991, you won the FA Cup and central to that was Paul Gascoigne. So he played for Tottenham between 1988 and 1992. He made 120, uh, sorry, 112 appearances for the club. He scored 33 goals and quite simply, Leon, he was absolutely brilliant, wasn't he? Just so, so, so good. And you can imagine as a kid going to watch Paul Gascoigne play. It mm. was just the ultimate treat. Um, and we were going regularly. We didn't have our season tickets in place by then, I don't think. I think the following season we did. But, you know, just the way he would dribble, the way he would pass, the explosiveness, the free kicks. I remember um, him scoring, I think, was it two or three free kicks against Peter Shilton when he was playing for Derby County? And th- these free kicks were from one heck of a distance that he was whipping in against, you know, Peter Shilton. And, it was just so exciting to watch him. And of course, he was playing with Gary Lineker at that time. Mm. So, you know, Gary Lineker, one of the most intelligent strikers I've seen, you know, people would say, oh, what does Gary Lineker do? Where he scores goals, you know, he's he was pretty much always onside. His runs are timed to perfection uh, and his finishing is, is, is an absolute joy to watch. But to have Gaza and Lineker, you know, two of the big, big stars from Italia 90 as well, um, in your team watching them every week was just something so, so, so good. And um, just him as a character, you know, he was he was everywhere, you know, he was kind of in spitting image. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, he was kind of turning With up. With the big fake plastic boobs on the... Yeah, 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 <laughs> on exactly. image. Luton Airport, where they... Yeah, yeah I mean, it was, it, it was just... It was just everything. It was just... Just just such a huge, huge character. And to a kid, you know, it's not like this was some defender who just like, you know, like your star player is a defender who just kind of defends and does really well in his defending or a striker that just kind of nets all the time. This was like an artist. Mm. This was, you know, as a kid, you want to dribble around everyone, you know, and you want to score the goal where you kind of tuck it in the corner. And you remember, we're coming off the back of Maradona around that time where, you know, we're looking at this incredible player where it's all about dribbling and low centre of gravity and turning left and right. And then we've got our own little Maradona, you know, from Newcastle, you know, in his shell suit, kind of cracking jokes and driving badly, you know, because I experienced that because of the day of the FA Cup final. Um, I'd been in the Spurs ball courts doing some training and afterwards the players were coming to the stadium to get the bus to the hotel for the night before. Um, so I was there. This is amazing. All the Spurs players are there. I'm getting all my signatures and stuff. Um, and then, um, you know, the, the, the coaching team were looking like really worried. What's going on? And my dad said, oh, Gazza's not here. It's late. And I was like, oh, what? Where's Gazza? He's got, what? Anyway, <laughs> this sports car, like 
I could not tell you how bad, how dangerous the driving would have been. And like literally zips round um, and the old Spurs stadium, you've got the kind of Bill Nicholson gates there and they were open. And you've got to remember, there's all these kids around because they're waiting to do these kind of get their signatures and Spurs kind of buses in the car park. Anyway, this zips around the corners, doesn't stop, slow down at all, like rips through the gate, just turns up and then get, and it's Gaza. And then Gaza oh, just, yeah. it was, it could have <laughs> mowed down a kid quite easily. Jesus Christ. The driving was that bad. That could have been the story of all stories. Yeah. Um, anyway, he, he got there, you know, got on the coach and, you know, we know what happened in that final, which was um, very um, sad. Um, in terms of the outcome of it, particularly after such an incredible um, semi-final against Arsenal, scoring a free kick where I told my dad, he's never going to shoot. My dad, no, I said, he's going to shoot, dad. And he went, no, shush, like, almost embarrassed like that I'd made the suggestion that Gaza was going to shoot from so far out. You know, the rest of it, Barry Davis takes it away from there. Maverick has gone forward with Stewart to the right, Lineker and Howes to the left. Is Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I say! Brilliant! That is schoolboy's own stuff. Oh, I bet even he can't believe it. Is there anything left from this man to surprise us? That was one of the finest free kicks that this stadium has ever seen. Seaman got his hands, couldn't hold. Spurs have the lead. Paul Gascoigne, the scorer. Did you ever get to speak to him then during your time training at Spurs? God, you know what? No, I didn't. Oh. I didn't. I didn't ever get a chance to speak to him. And as a journalist, I never got to speak to him because, you know, I was doing sports news and he was always in such bad shape around the time that I was working that he was kind of completely off the scene. And, mm. you know, I would never be put on a story to go and speak to Gazza about kind of yeah. the struggles that he was facing. It wasn't the kind of story that I'd be sent to cover at that point in my career. So, you know, strangely enough, I've, you know, never actually met him um, mm. or spoken to him. And I thought I would, because I've, I've met most people um, that I admire um, within the, the the football industry. And certainly as a kid, the players I looked up to. So, no, I, I, I don't know what I'd ask him. I'd probably ask him. No, in fact, I know exactly what I'd ask him. I'd ask him about if he remembers that day when he was late. for the, <laughs> the <laughs> He nearly ran, ran you over that, yeah, and almost ran, ran other kids over. Kid. <laughs> yeah, absolutely I mean you mentioned I mean there are two games that essentially they, they came very close together in that 1991 season and they basically sum up Paul Gascoigne don't they there's a semi the FA Cup semi-final against Arsenal where you know he scored that absolutely brilliant free kick and then obviously Spurs win that game 3-1 get to the final play Nottingham Forest uh, they win the game but it's probably best remembered for, for Paul Gascoigne having to be stretched off early on in the first half with what was uh, subsequently discovered to be uh, torn crucial ligaments in his right knee because he just went absolutely mad in that game. I mean, he, he almost took um, Gary Parker, uh, oh. Gary Parker's ribs off with a high challenge. The referee, Roger Milford, um, I think he booked him, didn't he? But he probably should have sent him off. And then he then ra- and then he sort of almost wiped out uh, Gary Charles quite soon after the Forest fullback. And um, that's when he then that's when he had his injury. And obviously, what everyone says is if Milford had sent off Gascoigne after the Parker uh, challenge, then then he wouldn't have made the challenge on Charles, which ultimately led to his really serious injury. I mean, that summed him up, wasn't he? He was um, brilliant against Arsenal, overly hyper going into the into the FA Cup final against Forest. I mean, he was just a flawed genius, wasn't he? In those two games, encapsulated that. Yeah, flawed genius is is the perfect way to describe him at that point. You know, 
just um, just could do things. I mean, I was at both games. I was at the Arsenal semi and I was at the final. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, you went to both. You went to Wembley yeah. for both games. Yeah, fantastic. Both, both of those games, which was, yeah. you know, just, just so, so special. Um, and, you know, really grateful for, to my dad for, you know, giving me those experiences as a, as a young person because they really are, you know, so special. But, um, yeah, just, just, it, it was such a strange game, that final. So, so strange. Just the excitement going into it, the feeling the year ends in one. Chaz and Dave had done the song. Um, it's lucky for Spurs when the year ends in one. Saint and Greavesy watching that across the season. It was kind of like got you really excited. And they really did know how to put on a great programme. That Saint and Greavesy programme, I, I loved mm, it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Sadly lost to both of them in recent months. I mean, both have tragically died. In St John right. and then Jimmy Greaves, yeah, quite recently. That's right. And um and 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 just being at that that final, you know, there was this kind of feeling that I don't have this much at football games, but there was a feeling that we were going to win. And then obviously it went very, very bad, very, very quickly. And there was a sense of, oh geez, we we're not gonna we're not gonna win this. You know, like Stuart Pierce was immense, you know, immense as a player mm. of that period for Nottingham Forest, the, the free kicks he would bang in, etc. Um, and we'd been so, let's say, overly reliant, but we were very reliant on Gazza as our star to create. Um, and, you know, the, the, the player that really stepped up that day was Paul Stewart, um, who obviously has um, shared his personal story um, in recent years around the abuse he suffered. And, and Paul, Paul Stewart was this guy who'd come to us as a striker, like a real strong striker, um, but he didn't score many goals. Um, and then he'd been moved to this kind of like central midfield position um, where he did really well. He won the ball and gave it and, you know, he'd done really well. And in that final, I remember, he's not talked about that much, but he played a blinding game for us. He really did. Um, he played such a good game in that final um, that he was one of the driving forces who really stepped up when Gaza went off to, to, to help us win that game. Clever. Oh, that's a good little ball. Gary Charles was well forward. Definitely a foul. There's an injury there at Paul Gascoigne, who, who was the one who lunged for Gary Charles. Gary Charles, for me, could be very much a key player because the way Howes is shadowing Clough, Spurs haven't got anyone out wide and he can make these sort of runs here. Paul Gascoigne, I mean, it's a terrible tackle. I mean, you know, missed time he was never going to get the ball and uh, very rash and he's hurt himself doing it and uh, it's not his strongest point and we've had two now bad challenges from him oh, it's in! what a splendid shot by the forest captain to give brian Clough's team the lead in the cup final and what gasco ended in the semi-final against arsenal pierce produces against tottenham in the final Superbly driven, Gascoigne still hobbling after giving away the free kick from which Pierce puts Forrest into the lead. Stewart, oh, it's a good ball to Minica, a real opportunity here for Tottenham. Penalty. Now, what does the referee do about the goalkeeper? Minica has been brought down by Crossley. Spurs have a penalty, but in the Football League this season, referees have been sending goalkeepers off if they call it a deliberate foul to prevent a goal scoring opportunity. I don't think he should be sent off because I think a penalty is a just enough punishment for an incident like that. And I hope the referee agrees with me. 
but Gary Lineker is the man who takes the Tottenham penalties and now on his shoulders shades here of uh, the World Cup and Crossley has saved it and follows Dave Besant as a goalkeeper who saves a penalty in an FA Cup final extraordinary but here's Paul Allen and Paul Stewart with a chance for Spurs and the equaliser Paul Stewart scores and Spurs are back in the cup final Nyan got the ball across to Paul Allen who really made inroads there Lineker was one side of him but Stewart was the other and Stewart coming in from the angle drives that with great accuracy and venom Dead, it's 30 minutes of extra time quite a common occurrence in recent Wembley finals and just wonder whether Paul Gascoigne will be watching this in hospital in goes Stewart oh a chance at the far side it's in an own goal I think it went in off a forest player and Spurs are in the lead for the first time in this cup final from the corner and Des Walker has the misfortune to put the ball in his own net and there it is Tottenham Hotspur have won the FA Cup for a record eighth time and Brian Clough has failed at his 34th attempt with Des Walker's own goal and luckily for him being decisive in extra time Terry Venables triumphant yeah just seeing Tottenham win that well, lift that trophy Gary Mabbott with Eric Torslip behind him you know all the players kind of hanging off the balcony kind of you know so happy. I mean, Paul Paul Allen, who was in that team, has become a friend of mine. Works with the PFA. Um, I'm still like slightly in awe when I <laughs> am around Paul Allen. <laughs> I'm around him quite a lot. Um, just that team and just that year, the way we got to the final. You know, oh god, a great game against Portsmouth and this really windy game against Blackpool. You know, it's just all these kind of things. I think it was Notts County we played at our place, um, where Gazza again worked his magic. Um, not an easy kind of, you know, we didn't smash everyone on the way to the final. There were really difficult moments and the team pulled through and Gaza was the star every time. Uh, amazing memories, amazing, amazing memories. But yeah, you went on to win the FA Cup and just on, on Gascoigne, I mean, missed the whole of the 91-92 season with that crucial ligament injury. He actually picked up another knee injury in that season. Mm. Uh, classic Gaza. it was uh, during a night out in Newcastle and then he joined Lazio for five and a half million pounds ahead of the uh, 92-93 season and, and obviously went on to have quite a tumultuous career um, from then on as well. Um, just to talk about the 90s more broadly, so you, you started the decade really well, as I said, you finished third in 89-90, won the FA Cup in 91. The rest of the decade, though, is fair to say, uh, very up and down for Spurs, uh, very turbulent. You had six managers in, in the decade, two of whom were joint managers, Doug Livermore and Ray Clements, three caretaker managers as well, Steve Perriman, Chris Hewton and David Pleat. You finished 15th a couple of times and you finished no higher than seventh. I think there's a bit of a relegation scrap as well around sort of 97 and 98. But also that was a decade when Jurgen Klinsmann signed for the club. He arrived from uh, Monaco in July 1994. And for me, a truly iconic signing in the history of English football. For me, it was a moment when I realised how big the Premier League had become because he was a genuine superstar Klinsmann. He'd just played for Germany at the World Cup. He was, for me, you know, just one of the top strikers in Europe. And, you know, younger people won't 
fully grasp how significant to have a player that profile coming to England was in, in 1994. I mean, now you'd sort of expect that, I guess, but then it just felt so massive that Jurgen Klinsmann had, had come to England and, and joined Spurs. Do you remember where you were uh, when you'd heard Klinsmann yeah. had signed for Tottenham? Yeah, I mean, I can't remember where I was when I heard that he had signed, but I certainly remember where I was uh, for his first game against Sheffield Wednesday, yeah. uh, which was a brilliant, brilliant um, game. Um, I was on the roof of a hotel in Jamaica, um, me and my dad. What a setting! With a, uh, <laughs> but it was it was it was in Kingston, so it wasn't like this beautiful oh, okay. surroundings, yeah. but um, with a with a transistor radio with because we were listening to the game which was the only way back then you know there was nothing now you'd go to the, the local bar and they'd have it on a massive screen so you could watch mm. it live on an international feed but back then we were just sat on this roof of this hotel that we were staying in with the radio listening in to the debut of Jürgen Klinsmann and it was just this world service kind of like thing going on and I just remember just jumping up when Klinsman scored you know his goal and they described oh he's ran over and he's dived and I was yeah. like, what he's dived and obviously that was kind of a nod to the reputation that he had previously him taking the Mickey Mouse out of himself mm. um, which again for the way that we perceive German people generally then it was like you know German people are very serious and very straight and they don't do jokes and then here's this guy who kind of you know drives into the training ground in a beetle um, and scores this goal and then takes the mickey out of himself for diving as part of his celebration. And it felt like this is going to be really special. This is going to be really, really, we're in for something here. Now here's Anderton with the cross. Klinsmann's free and he's marked his debut with a goal. Jürgen Klinsmann does it. <laughs> well... They joke about the diving. That one is perfectly legitimate. And so too was this header. Pulled away from Walker. And it was a terrific finish. You know, it's funny because international football can be interesting when you see players score goals. But when it's not your team, you don't necessarily pay as much attention to the way that they play football um, individually, I feel. Or certainly that's been my experience. When they're in your team, you, you see everything about them. You know, you watch them week in, week out, and and just Klinsman, the movement, the athleticism, the the way you know he, he was just you know overhead kicks and just the, the way he he would distort his body to take on chances and the way he would give everything, he would leave everything on that pitch, like everything he would give to score goals and motivate his team. And oh man, he was just you know I thought I'd seen it with Lineker. Not seen a better striker than him. And then Glinsman walks through the door. You know, just totally spoiled as a kid. Totally, totally spoiled by the players that kept on walking into this club. Mm. Despite us not winning anything. And I know that's the big thing that everyone holds over Tottenham. Like the players I've seen, you know, like we're not talking very good players. We're talking the best players in the world that I've seen during this time, which makes it even more startling that we haven't won anything. Mm given the, the, the quality of players and, and not just in the twilight of their careers, because when, when, you know, Klinsman came to us, I think he was 30 at first. So it's not quite the end of his career. He came back later on, I think about 35 or something like that. But 
he was he was just so special, just such an intelligent. That's the thing I love. I love intelligent footballers. I love those footballers who see gaps, who see passes, who see runs, who are just operating on a different level. Those are the footballers that I love. And Klinsman's certainly, you know, at the top of that list for me, for Tottenham. Yeah, he's got, well, I should say, uh, so he scored 21 goals in 41 appearances during the 94-95 season. He then left, which uh, famously led to Alan Sugar, um, a bit of a rant on TV, wasn't he, where he's been giving him his shirt and he wouldn't wash his car with it or something. He was furious that he left to, to join Bayern Munich, we should say, so you can kind of understand why he left. Yeah. Um, and he came back on loan in 97 in that season, I right. mean. When, when Spurs were struggling a bit and he sort of came back to help the club and scored another nine goals in 15 games. So uh, ultimately it was kind of a fairy tale ending from there. Um, we should say in the 90s as well, you also won the, uh, you did win a trophy in that time. Talk about Tottenham's lack of trophy. You did win a trophy, the 1999 Worthington Cup, beat Leicester 1-0 in the final and a Nilsson with the goal. Um, but yeah, it was a tough decade. And I guess the end of that decade especially was tough going into the noughties because, I mean, you referenced this earlier, Arsenal were, this was Arsenal's peak period, wasn't it? The 98 to 2004 period for Arsenal where they won what, three league titles, two doubles, and, and obviously they had that season where uh, they went unbeaten as well. Um, and Tottenham at the time were, were struggling. Um, that must have been a, a really tough time to be a Spurs oh, fan. That's all 1998 to 2004 period especially. Living in North London, not seeing that many Spurs fans around at that time in my <laughs> life. Yeah. Uh, Sol Campbell having a stroll over um to the red side of north london um i mean it all was just you know wow <laughs> wow this is this is this is hard but but you know you know i think we still had great players to watch during that period um we there was still a sense of excitement um and and it's funny you know because I remember a game against Oldham, Tottenham versus Oldham, and we almost had to win this game to kind of like have a real good chance of staying up. And if we lost it, we were really in, in trouble. And winning that game, you know, there was such a high from that. It kind of helped me kind of connect with clubs that are lower down the leagues and mm. where they get their buzz from. Because I think when you support a supposedly big club, and I think this is the problem with Tottenham, we sit outside of those big clubs at the moment because we're not winning things. So we're watching others winning things. Um, and we're kind of nearly winning things, whereas other clubs are getting their buzz from staying in the Premier League and, you know, maybe having like a fall down the leagues like Leeds United, for example, and then coming back up and rebuilding and moving towards um, what they hope they'll be in the future. Where, where do you get your wins? You know, what is, a, what is a win for a team that doesn't really have a chance of winning the Premier League? It's getting into the Champions League. And then we started doing that, didn't we? We started getting into mm. the Champions League. And then that stopped being a win. It started being an expectation. But then we couldn't push on, push on to the next part of that and missed out the year that Leicester won the league. You mm. know, I think Tottenham were the best team in the league that year. But, you know, we didn't have enough to push on and get the job done. And Leicester um, did. Leicester got it done. They were kind of incredible. So where do you get your wins from? I think sometimes some of the things that maybe kept me going during that period was getting the wins so we weren't getting relegated. You know, we have to win this game. You know, that, that's the thing I think that drives a football fan, you know, getting to a place where we have to win this game. Mm. You know, that's that's the thing. And that might be a game that stops you being relegated. It might be a game that win, wins you a title. It might be a game that gets you into the Europa League. It might be a game that gets you into the Champions League. But we have to win this game. It has meaning. It has purpose. We have to do something here. I think that's what keeps us all going as fans. Yeah. So during that period, 
it was a struggle, but actually you kind of reveled in the struggle almost. You at least you had something to focus on. It might have been a negative, which is staying in the Premier League, but at least you had something to fight for. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I think so. Looking back, you know, I, I, I certainly don't look back and think, oh God, that was a real dull period. <laughs> it's not dull, not in the slightest. Certainly not <laughs> the 90s dull. were eventful for Spurs, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, certainly not dull, certainly not dull. And, and I think dull could be the worst thing for any football fan, just finishing 11th every year. Could yeah. you imagine? And I think we had a lot, a bit of that, to be fair, with Tottenham. But you know, it, it we it was never really dull. I don't remember many many yeah. close seasons. Yeah. Well, t- well, speaking about not being dull, I, yeah, I'll sort of move on and fast forward a bit into the noughties and, and beyond because I I think Spurs have had two really fascinating years, and it brings a conversation back to some extent to the Daniel Levy era. Um, you know, we were reflecting on him early and, and you, you know, we talked about modernising club and bringing success. And you said he sort of took Tottenham away from being a, a real struggling club in the 90s to a modern and relatively successful team in the sort of noughties onwards. And I think you've had two really fascinating, what feel like as from the outside, exciting eras, which was the Harry Redknapp era mm. and then the Maurizio Pochettino era. And the Harry Redknapp era, you know, you qualify for the Champions League for the first time. Uh, Gareth Bale emerges. I mean, he really comes to his own uh, into his own under uh, Andre Villas Boas. But he sort of, you know, uh, Redknapp I think signed him and he and he started to flourish under him. And then yeah. Pochettino, of course, with those regular Champions League qualifications. Uh, you said as well, almost won the league in 2016 um, when Leicester won it. The following year, 2017, you were absolutely brilliant. You went undefeated at home in that season yeah. and played some fantastic football. Your last season at White Hart Lane, and of course, got to the Champions League final in 2019 as well. Um, so they feel like two really exciting eras. There is a lot of, I think, regret around the Pochettino era because obviously it didn't lead to, as, as we were saying earlier, the trophy that it probably should have done and, it, and he left in slightly bitter circumstances. But do you reflect on those two periods quite fondly? And again, no trophies in those periods, but again, a sense of, of success because you really had, did emerge into a force in Europe as well and play, just played some fantastic football in both, in both eras. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the football, you know, the football yeah. under Harry Redknapp. Um, was great. It was it was just free flowing football, creative, you know, likes of like Jermaine Defoe scoring ridiculous goals and him being a very exciting player to watch. You know, it was it, you know it, there were just so many so many highs as part of that journey that I don't think anyone could look back at the Red Lap years and go, oh, that was you know that wasn't that wasn't good because we didn't win a trophy. I, mm. I just don't feel that way. Um, and similarly with Pochettino, you know, he came in and it was, I did his first um, live interview on ITV. Oh, wow. Um, because, oh, after he got the Spurs job. Yeah so, he, yeah, so he got the Spurs job. He'd been at Southampton and yeah. never done one. And apparently, I don't know if it's true or not, but Spurs insisted as part of him joining that he had to do his interviews in English. Yeah. So uh, just, was, just to say on that very briefly, yeah, I remember when he was Southampton manager and we, we had a few... Uh, I covered a few Southampton games when he was Southampton manager and the post-match press conferences, he always had a translator, which, as you'll know, really dilutes any post-match press conference because it's just not the same when it comes to a translator. But I remember it was like a running, it was like a joke, it was a running joke that we knew he could speak English and the journalists were just sort of almost laughing when he was speaking through translation. He was sort of grinning through it because it's like, we know you can speak English, but for some reason, you know, you don't want him maybe because you don't feel completely secure in your English. And then it just, yeah, it was like a switch was flipped. As soon as he came to Spurs, he's, the translator's gone and he's speaking, he's speaking yeah. fluent English, yeah. which, I mean, which we always knew he could do. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because he always had his assistant manager in the room for interviews. Any interview yeah. did with him, he'd always be there. And I think that's really interesting because it just shows... Is that little Jesus? Is that uh, Jesus yeah, he takes right. with him everywhere? Yeah, yeah. Everywhere. So I'd be like, yeah. why is the assistant manager <laughs> in the room 
while we're doing the post-match. But yeah. it's interesting because, you know, those post-match interviews are, you know, can, can, can shape the perception of a manager. And, you know, I think having that extra set of eyes across those interviews to kind of, for them to feed back almost mm. in terms of how did I do, you know, gives him an honesty that maybe, you know, Simon Felstein's a, a great press officer when he was at Spurs and I'm sure he developed a, a fantastic relationship with Mauricio Pochettino. Um, but this was his first one. And I kind of think that they, they, they've got such a special relationship, those two, that they actually do their own debriefs away from the club to kind of assess how things are going. Um, and for Maurizio to have that honesty, that level of honesty from someone who he really trusts and knows. Um, but, but no, I, I remember doing that first interview um, and his English was you know, pretty good. As we all knew, yeah. <laughs> and um, it, was a, it was a friendly game. And I think they kind of, I think they lost that friendly game, actually, because I remember um, interviewing Andros Townsend as part of that as well and kind of saying, oh, I've heard the training's hard. And almost Andros was a little bit offended by the fact that I'd said the training was really hard. I'm not quite sure why. I'm not sure what, what, what he took from me asking that question because it was a genuine tell us about the training kind of thing. But, you know, off the back of that, he was such a warm guy, Maurizio in that situation when I was interviewing him um, which isn't always the case and shouldn't always be the case because it's my job to ask at that point difficult questions that need answering but but yeah the football that he managed to get that team playing I mean geez you know Ericsson I mean like I said we talk about Undumbele now but Dembele mm. you know Musa Dembele wow the balance that guy has the way he went past players the passing you know, they, they mucked around with him in the number 10 position, but when he eventually found his place as a number eight, you know, he, he's just different class. I think speaking to any Tottenham fan, they'll tell you he's one of the best players they've watched in their time um, at Tottenham. He was just so, so good. And to have the players around him that we had, to have Harry Kane come good during that period with that manager, um, to have Christian Eriksen come in as... You know, one of the, the, the new signings, um, I guess, as part of the the, the Gareth Bale deal, that the, mm. pretty much the only one that worked out, if we're being honest, um, and for him to go on to be such an impactful player for us. Um, the fullbacks in that team, oh, Danny Rose and Carl Walker, they were just, they were brilliant. They were just so good. Um, and then to have, you know, Toby Alderweireld and um, Jan Vertonghen and then have Lloris behind, I mean, just like all of them at the peak of their powers, pretty much. It was just, just magic. It was just, just a magic situation. And Maurizio squeezed the best out of absolutely each and every one of them. Fond, fond memories of, of, of two different eras, but, uh, you know, I don't think back and say we didn't win a trophy. I think back and think, wow, I've watched some incredible football. Yeah. Well, I was, yeah, I was, I was, listening to you, it's really interesting because, you know, I've, I've mentioned it a million times and you probably got annoyed by it to some extent about the no trophies, no trophies. I mean, Tottenham, we should say people who don't know, Tottenham's last trophy was a, was in 2008, the League Cup. And from the outside, it feels like a bit of an obsession for the club. And that explains why, for instance, Mourinho came and now Conte's come. That, that desire to finally win that trophy, get that, in inverted commas, born winner in who's going to get you over the line. But listening to you speak during our chat... It sounds like for you, it really isn't that important. And what you've really appreciated as a Spurs fan is being able to watch fantastic footballers throughout your 30 plus years, the likes of Gascoigne, Lineker, Bale, Eriksen, Dembele, Kane, uh, you know, uh, Klinsman, of course, Sheringham. Um, 
Is that fair to say? And, and how widely shared do you think? You know, we always hear that Spurs, you know, the whole dare is to do motto that Spurs fans really do. The most important thing to Spurs fans is attractive football and watching beautiful football. I've always thought that's a bit of a myth, but listening to you, it sounds like that genuinely that it really does matter to Spurs fans. And partly that is because you've seen so many great players. You appreciate great football over winning the odd trophy uh, here and there. I mean, yeah, look, maybe it's because we haven't won many trophies that I don't appreciate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Chicken or egg, is it? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> maybe that's, that's, that's the real reason behind it. But um, for me, it, 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 I just think I've just had an opportunity to watch so many brilliant players do incredible things. And it doesn't feel like time lost. It doesn't feel mm. like time lost waiting to win a trophy. It just doesn't feel like that. Um, that's not my experience. Um, do I moan like every other Tottenham fan that we haven't won a trophy? Do I kind of feel it in the gut when I've got, you know, the Chelsea fans in particular and the Arsenal fans getting into, into us saying, oh, you've not won a trophy, empty trophy. T-. Yes, I do. I, 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 but, you know, when I look at the players that we've watched, when I, when I think about the things I've seen, when I think about the high moments, you know, would I change it? Yeah, of course, I'd go back and I'd stick a couple of trophies in, in our history. But, you know, the absence of trophies, does that take away from that, that that sense of, like, joy and happiness I felt during that period when we were playing well and, you know, turning results around? No. I you know, that, that was a real special time and it will always be a real special time. And... I tell you what, when we do win a trophy, because surely it's got to happen at some point and it'll probably be the League Cup and it'll probably be 1-0 after an own goal or something like that. And it won't be a magnificent display or anything like that. But when we do win a trophy, my gosh, we're really going to enjoy it because we've waited a long time. But I do feel like as a club, when we win it this time, as opposed to the times previously, now we're set up to be a big club. You know, now, you know, winning something can look, you know, if we win the League Cup, I'm not sure it's going to really um, propel us in the same way as kind of, you know, winning an FA Cup or that's not even deemed in the same way it used to be. But, you know, um, getting back into the Champions League, for example, in that stadium, Mm. it's going to be sensational. And that will kind of give us the momentum needed to keep competing. Um, yeah. And look, you know, I, I imagine the club will be sold in the next kind of two to three years. I'd be shocked if it wasn't. And it'd be interesting to see who comes and buys it because it's all set up now. You've got a world class stadium, you've got a world class um, manager in place. Um, you've got um, world class training grounds. Um, so if you're looking to buy a club, you know, it's pretty much all there. You've got a global fan base. So I would expect, you know, if we are bought out, then actually that might change the levels of investment that you know the fans keep complaining about, understandably so, which then helps us mm. kick on to kind of genuinely be in the mix for trophies year after year after year. Um, that's how I expect it to play out. Um, but if it doesn't and we keep bringing in magical players, um, then then I'll, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take it. I'd prefer to have the magical players and a load of trophies um, watching robots. Some Spurs fans might say you're crazy. Give us a couple of robots and trophies and then let's make a decision off the back of that. But, you know, Gaza, Waddle, you know, Undumbele at the moment, 
you know, give me those players, give me those mm. players. For me, it's it's it, it, it's about doing it with style. And, you know, there's a new generation of fans. They might not feel the same. Maybe that's part of what this is, this narrative that exists on social media about, you know, Tottenham fans, well, Tottenham have to win trophies. I do think they have to win trophies, but it doesn't take away from the great moments that we've had. Not for me, not, 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 not at all. Yeah, and that's a really, really interesting answer, you know, because I oft, you often think fans who say, I'd, you know, I'll take great football over trophy success are kind of sort of lying to themselves as much as they are to you. But it really does feel incredibly sincere with, with you. And, and it's kind of refreshing and nice to hear, you know, because you can have as much, you can take as much joy seeing Paul Gascoigne beat three players and put one into the top corner. Then you can see your captain at any given moment lift a trophy. And as you say, if it's done in sort of boring circumstances, is that really better than seeing Gascoigne, Waddle, Sheringham, Kane, Son, Young Min, you know, these sort of players weaving their magic. And I'm not sure it necessarily is. And speaking of great players, let's move on to your all-time 11. Last couple of things we do on this podcast. Um, you've been absolutely brilliant, I should say, Leon. You've been absolutely fantastic. So let's let's wrap up the last couple of things. And the first last thing is your all-time 11. So people who, who haven't listened to this podcast before, I always ask my guests to... Pick an all-time eleven based on the best eleven players they've seen play for their club during their time supporting that club in any formation they like. Uh, Leon's picked an all-time Tottenham eleven. Uh, it's in a three-four-three formation. Um, so let's go. Th- I'll go through the team. So in goal is Hugo Lloris. The back three are Carl Walker, Ledley King, and Sol Campbell. The midfield four are Gareth Bale, Paul Gascoigne, Musa Dembele, and David Ginola. And the front three are Teddy Sheringham. Jürgen Klinsmann and Gary Lineker. Two observations for me, Leon. Your midfield, you said it, you said it yourself when you emailed, uh, you emailed the team across to me. It's a, it's a midfield that would definitely be very fun to watch. Uh, Bale, Gascoigne, Dembele and Ginola. And I think it really touches on what we've just been saying, that you've seen some fantastic footballers during your time sporting Spurs. And that is really important to you. So you've obviously tried to get as many of them into the team as possible. <laughs> Yeah. But one pick that really stands out to me, and you did, you mentioned him in passing earlier when we were talking about um, sporting, uh, sporting Spurs during that period where Arsenal were dominant, uh, is Sol Campbell. Um, Got to say, controversial pick. He was absolutely brilliant, of course, for Tottenham. And, then, and But the point is, he was then also absolutely brilliant for Arsenal. He joined them on a free transfer. It was a hugely controversial move in 2001. Most Spurs fans, I would suggest, haven't forgiven him for it. Um, I think that's pretty safe to say, but you've put him in your all-time Spurs eleven. Um, you're going to get a bit of stick for that, aren't you, mate? <laughs> I, I, I absolutely am going to get a load of stick for it. But you know, during my time supporting the club, because I did think about Gary Mabbott and yeah. thought, gosh, you know, he was—he's someone who didn't really get, I guess, the young people would say, his flowers um, for, for 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 the incredible contribution he made as a brilliant captain and role model. Um, and a really, really good defender um, who was unlucky not to play more for England, actually, mm. um, I think. But there was a number of really great kind of England defenders around at that time. But Sol Campbell came through the youth system, was this gangly kid, you know, kind of playing it. It's similar to Ledley, actually. It was kind of like a bit gangly and playing kind of a left side of the defence um, to start with. Um, and then eventually went to, to, to centre-back and they messed around, toyed around with playing him in midfield, I remember a little bit as well. Exactly the same with King. Um, and, you know, just just Campbell, he was so good. Sol Campbell was so good. And I think Tottenham choose yeah. to forget how good Sol Campbell was. And I've definitely been guilty of that because, you know, as a young man, I was very angry with um, Sol Campbell for, for, for what he did. 
But if we're talking about the best players that I've seen, I, I, if, if any Tottenham fan seriously is, is saying that Sol Campbell is not one of the best Tottenham defenders they've seen, you know, I don't think you're being honest with yourself. I think you're getting caught up in the emotion. Yeah, no, he was an absolutely outstanding defender for, for England as well as Spurs. And actually got to know, I've got to know Sol a little bit. I, I interviewed him a few times. Like he, he, uh, he did the column for the Guardian during Euro 2012 and I ghosted it. So I got to know him uh, quite well. He is, he's quite a detached, should we say slightly aloof guy, but also a really, you know, I have no issues with him. So I had no problems with him. He's a really nice guy to, to, to deal with. And I do know from one of the interviews I did with him that, the, the lack of love at Spurs, it really does hurt him. You know, it really has affected him. He, he obviously, he stands by his decision to join Arsenal and he has no regrets about that, but there's no doubt he wishes, if he, he, he wishes he was able to go to back to Spurs now and, and get, you know, get a, a rapturous applause from fans and not even a rapturous applause, just, you know, a nice applause, a nice reception and not be sort of booed or called Judas and stuff. So really, even though he comes across as very sort of ultra cool and thick skinned, I know it does hurt him, but no, absolutely no doubt. A brilliant, a brilliant player for Spurs. Um, just one other observation as well. I mean, your front three is outstanding. Sheringham, Clinton, Milinica, absolutely brilliant. Um, but I was just curious how close Harry Kane came to coming in, getting into that side. I mean, you know, he's obviously your, your superstar striker at the moment. Uh, academy graduate, 167 goals in 249 games as of as of recording. <coughs> Spurs top scorer in the past seven seasons. Uh, obviously, just a brilliant player for Tottenham. Could well go on to become one of the all-time great goal scorers. Um, was his... Was the decision not to pick him affected at all or impacted at all, I should say, by his, by his clear attempt to join Man City in the summer? Do you know what? Um, uh, it, 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 he could easily be in this team. I mean, look, Jermaine Defoe is another one mm. that I really struggled with um, in terms of who I put into this team. But I just thought it would be a bit ridiculous to have four strikers. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, Lineker... you've, got yeah. you've got enough attacking players in there. Yeah. Take <laughs> yeah, yeah. out one defender and stick in another striker. Just yeah, exactly. let, let them loose. Yeah, because yeah, look, Lineker's in there for sentimental reasons. Like, as a kid watching him, it was just sensational. Yeah. Just that like, my introduction to football. Klinsman, we've touched upon in this, 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 this podcast in terms of just how magical it was watching him play as a young as a young person um a younger person and teddy sheringham you know it just uh, it, like just what he does is just just underappreciated because he's such an intelligent player like you know he's the original number 10 you know mm. he, he's the guy who's laying that ball through he's the guy who's hitting the top corner caressing a ball into the top corner um but no look i, I mean i think you could probably take out any of those three and put Kane in and it wouldn't make that team any worse. Um, Kane yeah. is brilliant. Um, and him nearly going to Man City and him not playing so well at the moment, you know, certainly the Man City bit didn't influence me. Maybe the not playing so well at the moment did influence me slightly because it didn't put him firmly on my radar in the same way he would have been last season, for example. Mm-hmm. And also, I just feel like you know, these players have, have done it. They've kind of delivered for Tottenham. And it's almost like Kane's got so much more to, to do and to give, whether that's yeah. with Tottenham or not. I hope it is. But, you know, I think if Kane wasn't at Tottenham right now, he probably would be in this team. But I think I've gone for a team based on the players who have been great. Some people will kind of put a little question mark against Carl Walker's name, I'm sure. But for me... I just think Carl Walker was sensational for us. I really mm. do. Just, just, I just think he's 
been an absolutely sensational defender for us. Or just such a good right back. And yeah, the rest, it's just so difficult. Um, no. But that's the beauty of football, right? Absolutely, yeah. I've got to say, if I was picking an all-time Spurs eleven, I would definitely get uh, Son Yun Ming in there. Absolutely love Son, adore him. I wish, I wish Jurgen would uh, would knock down John Henry's door and demand the money for us to go sign Son. I just love him. Just get get Son to Liverpool, Jurgen. Absolutely adore him. Um, Leon, you've been absolutely brilliant. Before I let you go, just going to ask you the final question, and it's the usual final question that I ask on this podcast. Um, if you go back in time and change one moment from your time supporting Tottenham up to now, and it can be absolutely anything, it could be a transfer, a goal, a uh, very personal experience, uh, you know, the outcome of a match, whatever you like, what would you choose? Oh, right. It's, it's, it's got to be the Champions League final and the Musa Sissoko handball. Um, yeah. If we could just make that ball move a little bit higher, <laughs> tips the top of it. Would it, be, would it be a handball if it's the top of his shoulder? I'm not sure. Um, but let's let's just make it easy. Completely miss him, um, yeah. so we could see what transpired in that game without that big moment, which influenced that game massively. I'm not saying Tottenham definitely would have won that game, of course not. But to go behind so early, I I, I hadn't even taken my seat at that point. So um, that's the thing I would change, I think. And then we would have seen if if, if that that team, which was a brilliant team, would have been up to it. Because, um, you know, it was obviously a fantastic Liverpool team. It just would have been nicer to have kind of seen the game play out a little bit longer than, than it did in the end. Well, I was in Madrid that night as well. And I got to say, Leon, I was absolutely delighted when that penalty was given. I celebrated <laughs> widely at the, uh, at the other end of the pitch. Uh, yeah, sorry. We had very contrasting experiences at the, uh, the Metropolitano. What's it called? The Estadio oh. Metropolitano Stadium, isn't it? Atletico Madrid's grand. Let's just the say, yeah. Like yeah, that. the one, yeah, whatever it's called. Yeah, on uh, June, the 1st of June 2019, a day I'll, I'll remember for, for, for... My memory's very happy. Yours probably obviously very bittersweet, but... Uh, yeah. That's all good. That's football. <laughs> and, and everyone will get their moment. So I'm just waiting for mine. Yeah. yeah. You'll, you'll, you'll win something soon. And uh, with Conte in charge, you'll almost definitely win something soon. Because as we said at the, early on this podcast, he is a natural born winner. And I do think he'll do well for Spurs. It won't last long, but it'll, it'll be uh, successful in my opinion. Leon, man, you've been absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you.